0: Anything Ask Alan anything Is it cold outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything World.
1: All right. Hello, everybody. This is Alan Crone. I'm the CEO of the Krohn Law Firm, and welcome to this episode of uh, Ask Alan, the podcast. Uh, I'm really, really excited to have uh, an entrepreneur's entrepreneur uh, on the program today, Michael Mogul, who's the founder and CEO of uh, Crisp Video, and uh, he's on a mission. I'll let him tell you what his mission is. Um but uh, his company has certainly helped me. Uh, Michael, uh, full disclosure, is a, is a friend and uh, a confidant of mine and has helped me through uh, 2020. And um, I don't care if you're a lawyer or uh, an entrepreneur or just someone living life in 2020 uh, in America, Michael has got uh, uh, some great messages to share with you. Michael, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit before we we just dive into it tell us a little bit about Chris video and what your mission is
0: yeah so so crisp we work exclusively with law firms at this point our our vision you know, is essentially we want to help a thousand law firms grow the revenues by at least a million each over the next five years and you know the the you know, the reason for that and you kind of added up a thousand law firms a million each it's a, it's a billion dollar impact but uh, really at the core of it it's You know, if you can help a firm grow either to a million or buy a million, what we found typically is, you know, what happens is the infrastructure of the firm, the sustainability of the firm, the, you know, there's now a team in place, uh, the impact they're able to make within their communities becomes exponential. It's not just incremental. So, you know, our way of being able to impact communities nationwide is being able to help our clients help their clients. Now, uh, I know that, that, you know, one of my favorite uh,
1: business books is Good to Great and they talk, you know, he talks about uh, overnight successes, and it only takes them 20 years to, to get there. Um, somebody from the outside looking in may look at your your business and say, oh, uh, you know, of course, it just sprung up as uh, a successful business, but that wasn't always the case, was it?
0: No, no, not at all. I mean, I was just thinking about, as as, uh, as you were mentioning this, uh, I mean, looking back, I, I think, you know, Crisp has been around, we just, you know, past nine years. So I guess you could say that's a nine year overnight success. But really, you know, once once I started, I mean I started my first business back when I was, you know, 13 years old. And then, you know, and then ultimately even coming out of college, you know, I started what wasn't Crisp but was the precursor to Crisp. So that was probably at this point, you know, it was 14, 15 years ago. So it's uh you know, it's taken a while. I think a lot of times what people see, I mean, a lot of what, what Crisp is today. And as we grow, I mean, this is really, I'd say really the last like three years, but leading up to this, I, mean, I didn't t- take a salary or anything like that. I didn't pay myself you know, year after year after year for really the first almost like five, six years or so. And you know, we were constantly reinvesting into the business. We still are. Um, we never took any loans, never had any investors, no partners, you know, nothing like that. But uh, I think if, if you have a long-term outlook, uh, if you're really focusing on like reinvesting back into the business. So in terms of hiring people, infrastructure and so on, Versus trying, I think that uh, I think where many entrepreneurs make the mistake is trying to take the profit out too early. Uh, you can really build something great. So when you when you started, did your did your folks sell a, a bunch of
1: Coca Cola stock and, and give you uh, capital to start? How did you how did you
0: get started? No, no, you know it's funny. Uh, th- so my my family and I, we you know, uh, immigrated from Eastern Europe. So I, I like to joke. I mean, there's no immigrant trust fund. So first generation here. Um, you know, my, my dad, uh, you know, back in Russia, he, you know, he was an engineer. My mom was a nurse. When they came here, they had to start over and they came here basically my parents, my grandparents, my brother and I, and when they got here, they had $500 to their name. So we, you know, I, I've always had loving parents who were very supportive, but, you know, financially we didn't grow up with much. I mean, we lived in a lot of low-income housing and things like that growing up. Um, but you know, we had, we had opportunity, you know, my brother and I, um, ironically, I would later go on to start crisp with, with $500 to my name, but. Um, I I would say that, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for those that are willing to get, you know, to get after it. I think it's, um, it's a privileged situation to be in America. I think it's a privileged situation that, you know, I went to college and I graduated from college, completely unrelated field. I mean, I was a biology major, Um, but no, I mean, in terms of the financial resources, you know, did not have that, had to figure it out. But I, looking back now, I mean, I look at that as, you know, as a blessing, if you will, because how resourceful you have to be, the things you have to learn and so on as a result. So, Uh, again, I I think it's an advantage. Yeah, you know, uh,
1: through you, uh, I got to, got to see Gary Vonnerchuk live, and he talks about the same kind of thing, uh, that it really is, in a way, to be an entrepreneur,
0: it's almost an advantage to have nothing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, well, because I think when you start, it's you're uh, where, where I've seen a lot of people struggle. is If you start and you really don't have anything to lose. So like when you're, you know, you're not giving up a, a Mercedes or a nice home or, or whatever it is, you're not having to really downgrade your quality of life because, you know, you're, you're kind of starting at a, at a ground zero, if you will. I think that's a lot easier, you know, when, when you're going all in, especially when you're starting out. What I think is trickier is if, you know, if you're having to give up a lot of those luxuries, and having to basically say, okay, now I can no longer live in the home we live in or the condo we live in because I have to start this business. You know, now we got to sell the car and all these different things. You know, for a lot of people, I think they're going to be very averse to doing those things. You know, so in my experience, it's easier when you kind of start with nothing, right, and build up to something than when you're having to like be. You know, let's say uh, we see people that are, let's say, they're in a good, high-paying job, they're doing well, but they want to kind of take the entrepreneurial route. It's a lot harder to give up the you know high-paying job and then you know go three, four, five years without paying yourself. You know, so I think for that reason, it kind of keeps them where they are. Yeah, I agree.
1: I know a lot of lawyers who um, are in a comfortable situation, and you know, it's that comfort that keeps you from moving sometimes because mm-hmm. exactly. uh, you don't want to give up the comfort. Uh, mm-hmm. But you could, you could propel yourself into even greater comfort. I guess is maybe the way to look at it. Uh, how important do you think? How important do you think having a mission-based business is?
0: Well, I'll tell you what. Over the years, I've I've viewed it as increasingly more and more important. I think when we're starting out, for for many of us, you know, as, as you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, and I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur or anything when I was starting the company. I, I didn't know even know what that was. But uh, I, I think the initial goal is okay, let's get that first client or let's get some money in the door, or let's meet payroll, or whatever it is. You know, I, I find that in the, in the short term early on, there's financial goals. But what really drives a business you know, into the future and really continues to grow to like to prevent any complacency for sitting in or even preventing, you know, from people taking their foot off the gas. If you have a financial target, the challenge is that once you, once you hit it, then it's like, then what, you know? But if you have, let's say, a greater vision, an impact target, and so on, like at that point, it's, you know, you become insatiable, right? So it's meaning that even once you hit some sort of financial goal, it's always like, what's next? How do we get to the next level? And and so on, because, you know, you, you have this, like, this vision that's tied to impacting people. And if you you realize that vision, why would you not want to continue to extend that and go beyond? So I find that the, the most successful entrepreneurs that grow their organizations the most are always ones that have a very clear vision, a very clear mission, all those things outlined. And and I, and again, I know what this sounds like to, to somebody, let's say, who's who's hearing this and they're struggling, they're saying, well, you know, mission and vision is nice, but what I really need right now are sales, or what I really need is revenue. And what I've learned is that those things become the byproduct. Of being so committed to the vision. So when you're committed to it, now you're making decisions based on like how do we, you know, impact our community? How do we support our clients? All, all those different things, which end up being better decisions in, in the long run. And as a result, the revenue comes as a byproduct. Uh,
1: many of our viewers may not know, but uh, Michael has a a great podcast himself called the Game Changing uh, Attorney Podcast, and uh, I listen to that frequently. And y- even if you're not a lawyer, uh, you're an entrepreneur, if you just listen and substitute your business for what these folks are talking about, I think you can find it helpful. And one thing that I'm struck by, Michael, is the the number of entrepreneurs, lawyers, whether they're someone like John Morgan, who's a giant, or uh, uh, Alex Shannara in uh, Alabama, or Eric Chafin, or any of the ones you've had on your show, um, they all say that. They all talk about, at some point, you go from your goal being money to your goal being bi- building something bigger than yourself. And
0: the money kind of comes from that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cause I, because ultimately this would come down to, how do you want to spend your time? Because, you know, I think money, if, if, if we're looking at it in terms of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and something along those lines, like money's great. If, you know, if, if you need it for, let's say, to pay off student loans, or you needed to be able to buy a home, or you needed to be able to, let's say, like, I, I think if you needed to expand the business in particular, let's say you need to be like, buy an office or hire additional team members and, and so on, I think, yes, then money makes sense. But if you have those resources, then what, right? Like, how do you justify additional growth, right? If, if meaning that, like, can you justify it if, you know, let's say you're at, you know, 20 million Uh, how do you justify 21 million if you knew that additional million meant that you may not be able to spend as much time with your family and kids? Is it still worth it? You know? So I think it only, you know, if you're going kind of the long game with it, you will only be fully committed to something if it's going to be transformational in your life. And I think that those are going to be not monetary goals, but rather impact goals.
1: You know, a lot of uh, my listeners, I think are entrepreneurs or budding entrepreneurs. And one question that I get asked a lot is, um, you know, someone comes to me for a business formation, and you know, how do I pick my business? And you're not too far removed from that. How did you? How did you? You decide. I, I see a market here. I, I want to try to go. I want to try to help lawyers with great videos. Um, why lawyers? And how did you go from kind of being a generalist to focusing just on lawyers?
0: Yeah, well, so we certainly didn't start out that way when, you know, when I started the company, it was originally evolved from another business, but um, essentially originally I kind of built crisp around our ideal clients, which were our corporate clients. So at the time we were in the brand space, working with the Coca-Colas of the world or, you know, Red Bull or Verizon and and so on, um, kind of like the agency model, if you will. And then we started to work in different industries like dental and medical and tech and financial and so on. Uh, legal happened by accident. Um, we, we had a lawyer who came to us, and you know, she, she had no online presence and was really struggling to compete against you know, the, the big mass advertisers in her market. Uh, at the time, online video isn't what it is today. Uh, we created you know, great content for her. We got the content online, and you know, her business exploded. And you know, we did it for another firm and then another firm. And what I saw, at least in the legal industry, was that you know, you've got a, a traditionally very saturated, commoditized you know, markets, if you will, so there's a lot of supply and, you know, competing for, you know, at times, you know, the, the same demand. And consumers also struggle to differentiate one firm from, from another. Like they oftentimes can't tell, you know, who's a good lawyer from, you know, who may not be a not so great attorney. So I think that was an opportunity for the kind of marketing that we were doing, which was very much based on humanizing, telling, you know, storytelling, you know, articulating what sets a firm apart. Um, that was, you know, for, uh, you know, initially geared towards. You know, not the massive firms, the mass advertisers, but rather like, you know, great attorneys that perhaps were not, you know, amazing marketers, but didn't have the resources to do things like traditional advertising, like TV and radio and billboards and so on. Um, so I think that's how it really started. And we, we found in our case that we can make a much greater impact for businesses and small businesses than, than we ever could for, you know, Coca-Cola or what have you. So that's where that focus shifted me being an entrepreneur myself. I think this is really kind of the, the root of it. You know, it's like, who, you know, who can we really make the greatest impact for? And then I also learned a very powerful lesson of focus. And, you know, it's a really niche down into a particular industry, you know, where I see a lot of businesses, you know, they, they, they try to be in multiple industries. They try to be for everyone. Uh, they, you know, they, they basically try to be everything. And it's very, very difficult to build not only, you know, a tremendous amount of trust and credibility, but it's it's very difficult to specialize when you're for everyone. So uh, I would advise anybody who's, you know, uh, let's say a budding entrepreneur wants to start a business to really get clear on who they're for and really focus and and niche down. You know, what's the quote, like the, the, uh, the riches are in the niches. But I think a lot of that is because primarily like, you know, we can build a lot of trust and credibility within the legal industry. We can start a legal podcast. We can write a book on legal marketing. You know, we can host legal webinars, But if we take the exact same model, let's say to another industry, let's say like the financial industry, for example, even if we provide the exact same service, we have not established any credibility or trust. So I think when you try to be in so many industries, you're not really building kind of the trust or credibility in any of them. And you're not seen as the go-to in in any, you know, any industry, which is why I think focus is such a powerful thing. Right, right. Talked about books. Um, uh, Michael's
1: written a book called The Game-Changing Attorney. And uh, it's a great book. Um, and uh, I, I got one of the first uh, copies when it came out, what, uh, almost two years ago now. Two years, yep. And uh, I hear, now you don't have to confirm this rumor, but I hear that that maybe there's there's another book in the offing. Um, we certainly want more than one book. But if if you're a lawyer and you'd like to, to get a hold of this, um, Michael had, didn't ask me to do this, but I'm not shilling for him. I don't get a kickback or anything. But... Uh, I'll be glad to send you a, a, a copy of the Game Changing Attorney um, because, and I'm talking to the lawyers right now, I think, i just talk for, for myself and, and how many of you can identify with this. I think lawyers are always looking for the magic bullet. And we always assume that there's, there's one thing, if I just do this one thing, that that's going to make the big difference for me. And the one thing I've learned in, in working with, uh, with Michael and Crisp over the last uh, two or three years is that it's not one thing. It's a whole bunch of different things, but be, doing them, uh, being disciplined and doing them repeatedly and, and hanging in there for the long, for the long haul. Um, as a former law partner of mine, Miles Mason, would say, um, this is a long con, it's not a short con. Um, and you got to establish that trust. And Michael, who was, who was somebody in your life that I know that you weren't born with that realization. Who was it that, that really was the biggest influence on you, on your philosophy, that philosophy
0: of, of building trust for the long, for the long haul, man, you know, so, I mean, I'm such an avid reader. I'll tell you, you know, when, when, when you write a book or you do a podcast or something like that, it almost creates this forcing function where you start to, you know, to, to read a lot more, consume a lot more content, that type of stuff. So you always kind of, you know, to stay on the cutting edge. Um, I, I will say that, you know, uh, if, from a customer service client experience standpoint, like Joey Coleman wrote a great book, uh, called, uh, uh never was a customer again. Uh, Tony Shea uh, wrote the, the, you know, from Zappos wrote the book, delivering happiness. I think that was a really great book. I, I read early in my career on, uh, on culture, uh, there's, you know, uh, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willick. I mean, so it's a number of those, but I, I will say it's, 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 it's so interesting, you know, when you've got a vision and you're clear on it and you can think, let's say for the long-term, you can make decisions that are based on, let's say two years from now, three years from now, you know, four years from now, wherever you want to take the business that perhaps you would have otherwise not have made if, if there's only a short-term focus and a short-term goal. And, you know, what I've seen even through my experience is that the things that are, that have the greatest upside are the ones that, you know, take a while. You've got to, you know, you've got to water them. You've got to stay committed to them. You've got to stay consistent to them. Um, that sometimes, you know, it's going to be a while, like months, maybe even years until you see a return on them. That doesn't make them the wrong things that, you know, more often than not makes them the right things, but you'll find that most people aren't willing to do them because they don't see the immediate return from them. So you see a lot of short-term thinking. You kind of see, like, I guess the example that I've given is like, you see people kind of burning down the forest every year and then trying to plant new trees, you know, the start of the following year, rather than really trying to like build something great and thinking about, okay, the decision I'm making today, like, does that still make sense three years from now? Is the person that I'm hiring today, does that person still make sense a year from now, two years from now, you know, and, and what have you. And then when you make decisions like that, like I think that's where you can really build something that's you know that's massive, if you will, but certainly something with a strong foundation. You're in a unique position because you talk to a lot of lawyers,
1: um, and your company talks to even more. Um, and I'm trying to figure a way to ask this question because I don't want to make I don't want it to be a negative question. But what is a strategy that you see a lot of law firms think is a good idea? And I know every situation is different but that normally doesn't work out well for them.
0: Um, Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, I I mean, so it's it's interesting. Al, you mentioned it earlier. Um, And there's really, so there's really two things. I mean, there's probably a dozen things, but like two that come to mind initially. Um, One strategy that I've seen has never worked out well and has like really never built anything long-term is any, like any firm owner that like, has a strong year or hits a big case or whatever it is, and then takes that money and puts it back in their pocket, as opposed to putting it back into the business. Um, On the podcast, like the most successful firm owners, it's so interesting, like they they all had a story like this. They had a strong year or they had a big case and then they took that money and put it right back into the firm, you know, into the marketing, into hiring, into infrastructure, technology, whatever it was. And then that became the catalyst for, for what the firm is today. And had they not done that, it would have never grown. So there's really, I think two types of of firm owners, one that like, you know, take that money and pay themselves first. And then others that, you know, uh, invest in the business first and are really focusing on like, how do we build something great? That's one. I mean, but the other one that you mentioned, like, I I think a very common mistake is this belief that there is a magic bullet, you know, magic bullet, holy water, snake oil, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And, you know, just because, I mean, I think there's a lot of marketing out there that has this, like people, I think sometimes, you know, people want to there's what people want versus what people need. So people want to hear how do I, you know, here's how you grow the law firm with no work, no time investment, no financial investment. It's easy and simple. I mean, like, of course, like that, that sounds amazing. Like who who would not want to grow a business on the beach while doing absolutely nothing? But the reality of it is like I have never in any, you know, with any lawyer ever in America. I mean, if, if someone's listening to this and they know of an example, like I will come, come out on record and, and correct this. I've never seen anybody succeed through any of those things. But I've consistently seen firm owners succeed where they stay committed to the things that they're doing. They invest in their people. They invest in their marketing. They stick with their partners. They stick with their vendors. Like, you know, the things where they kind of stick with things for the long haul. And, you know, and don't jump and, and treat, you know, whatever they're investing in is almost like a kitchen timer, right? With, where everything has an expiration date. It's hard to make progress if you're not, you know, sticking with things or committed to things, especially for those that are most worthwhile. So like, I find that while, while many people will say we need leads or, or whatever it is, like the phone's not ringing or what have you, usually it's not a lead problem. In fact, almost always it's not a lead problem, but rather a, you know, a reputation problem. Or, you know, in my, in my reputation, what I mean is that like, it foundationally in the firm, is the firm known? Is the firm trusted? Are there, you know, is the experience they're providing to their clients so good that other clients come back and refer cases back to them? Is the intake right? You know, all these things. You rarely ever hear of anybody that has all that dialed in whoever has a lead problem. It's always the other way around. Right, right.
1: And, uh, uh, you know, everybody, you know, everybody thinks that, well, there's that one case, just like the same thing everybody thinks there's that one case out there that's going to solve all my problems. Um, And, you know, there, there may be, but uh, that, that if there's a systematic deficiency, it's not going to solve that systematic deficiency. You'll be back where you were before you got the big, the big case. Um, What do you, uh, what do you see uh, as a, a any trends in the legal profession since you started working solely with lawyers that you
0: think is, is important for people to start thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, I, I think the greatest opportunities for growth are always going to be in areas where you can either specialize or there's like high margin work, because I think, you know, I always think about the converse, um, the stuff that we're seeing automated or that, you know, there's danger of it going away or it will go away the, the soonest when you're starting to see like non-lawyer firm ownership, things like that. Um, a lot of that kind of stuff is you know, a lot of low margin work. It's, a lot of it is transactional, but the, but the firms that I think they're going to be protected and actually in a better situation are the ones that are more specialized where the work that they're doing requires, let's say either litigation or something that is not something that can be easily automated, right? So it's really trying, you know, looking at it from the standpoint of like, here's why our clients really need us and here's the impact that we're making. And if somebody at another firm could easily replicate what it is that you're doing, then chances are neither firm is going to survive for the long term, especially what we're seeing with like the you know evolution of like technology and in the legal industry's adaptation of technology, which I think was expedited this year. Um, so I, I think that's one of them for sure. So those that like are specialized and, and focused. And then the other big differentiator that we're seeing is that you know, firms that are realizing that their competition really isn't other law firms anymore. Uh, I, I think nowadays consumers have like almost been re-indexed through their experience with brands like Amazon or Starbucks or, or what have you, that now they have an expectation of great customer service and client experience. Like they have, you know, this, you know, expectation of getting like consistent updates and so on that, um, you know, I don't w- want to speak dirty words, but like, I think it's becoming more and more important for, uh, for law firm owners to really understand the business of law, which means understanding things like, you know, how can I be a better leader? How can I lead a greater, you know, a better team? How can I make sure that our culture is right, that our client experience is right? All those things matter. I, I think at this point, almost as much, if not more, than the actual, you know, providing of legal services. Yeah, I think one um,
1: one issue that is more and more a problem for lawyers, uh, particularly. And I, and I want to be the old guy in the room, but um, you know, I find that that a lot of lawyers don't don't pick up the phone use some good old 20th century technology to stay in touch with their clients. Um, I know I'm a, I'm guilty of it. You know, I send an email or uh, a text or whatever, but it's that, that personal touch is what's going to, what's, what's going to get you the referral. Um, you know, great videos help and blogs and all those things help. But at the end of the day, it's a relationship business. Mm-hmm.
0: Ab- absolutely. And, and I think it's just, it's relationships, not even just like, as you mentioned with clients, but other, you know, referring lawyers and people in the community and, and, and so on. Uh, it, you know, it, if people are listening to this and they're like, man, that sounds like a lot of work. I got to know all this stuff. I got to grow as a leader. I got to develop a better team. We got to have better infrastructure. We have to have systems and processes and KPIs and all these different things. I mean, yeah. I mean, so if, if the goal is to build something that is, you know, going to be sustainable, consistent, predictable, and scalable. Yes. I mean, I, I think that that's kind of, that, that's par for the course. Um, but uh, you know, the reality of it is, I think neglecting those things puts many firms at a competitive disadvantage because there's always somebody in the market, like, you know, a gallon like yourself who is committed to these things. So you can't just simply exist or coast anymore, um, but it's a good thing overall. I, I think that it's, it's elevating the, uh, this, the perception of the legal profession. Uh, I think it's good for, uh, for clients and consumers and so on. So, uh, but it's just, it's understanding that those things are now like understanding the business side of law, customer service, client experience, intake. I mean, these things are a necessity um, to really be in the game and, and, and stick around long enough. Yeah, take it from me. You can't, you, can't, um, you can't just come in and practice
1: law and throw up a website and ignore the business side of it um, because the margins are too, are too narrow and the cost of everything is too great. Without leverage, you're not going to be able to make any money. I don't care what kind of practice you have because uh, there's always somebody who's bigger that has more economies of scale that you have to compete with. And, you know, unless unless you're John Morgan, um, but I would even imagine, you know, Morgan is worried about, um, you know, all these things and he doesn't spend all of his time trying cases anymore either. So uh, it's all about the business part of it. And, and I know a lot of lawyers really resist that um, because they say, well, I'm a legal professional um, and you, you can't have your own firm and ignore the business side of it. There's just no doubt about it.
0: Yeah. Or, or I mean, so I would say it just it depends on your goals. If, if you have zero interest in the business side of it, but you still want uh, to run a successful law firm, you know, hire somebody you know to to run the firm. Either hire a CEO or a COO or what have you. Um, but, but you can't be an absentee owner. I mean, that that's, that's what I'll say. I mean, at the end of the day, I think you have to have a very active role in the business. I'm one of these people. I know people say, oh, you shouldn't micromanage or what have you. And like they view it as such a bad or negative thing. I think people inspect what you, you know or respect what you inspect. And, you know, if you, if you play an active role in your business, if you know your numbers, if you know what's going on, if you, you know, uh, are consistently meeting with your team members, if you're consistently speaking with your clients, I mean, like, I, I think- if you're going to dedicate your time in some way and you're going to be committed to something, you know, go all in with it and and, and truly enjoy it. Uh, But if that's not something that you enjoy, I'd say at least find or hire the person who, you know, who does enjoy those things. But uh, the reality of it is if you don't like any of that stuff and then you're not focusing on any of it, it's, it's very difficult to be competitive. Right. And I think there's a subtle but
1: important difference between micromanaging and uh, providing leadership and accountability. And, you know, it's, it's not micromanaging to ask follow-up questions, um, it's micromanaging to take it out of their hands and do it yourself. And, and you, you're not going to be able to scale that way.
0: Absolutely. I mean, even and I would say at its core, what what I have seen, if I were to drill it down to like really two two core like concepts, because I think business is simple uh, at the end of the day, but it's also like it becomes almost like this infinite game of like once you realize what you don't know, there's just becomes so much more to learn and, and so on. So at, at the core, I think. You know, it's really two things. It's like people, you know, if if you've got the right ones. And And then two is really, I'd say courage. And it's like the willingness to either hire the people or write the check for the marketing or write the check for the building or whatever it is that you're doing because you can be empowered with all the information. Like you can know everything you need to do. But I find that there's very, very, very few entrepreneurs that are willing to write the right to check, right? That are willing to commit. That are willing to either have a difficult conversation of let's say letting go of somebody who's underperforming or an office cancer, or also being willing to hire, you know, an additional attorney or practice manager or, or whoever it is. You know, even if you know it's the right decision, like knowing and doing, you know, are, are two very different things. But even when you look at those two, you know, let's say like those two factors. Like there's such a wealth of of knowledge that you you gain over time. Like, you know, everyone can say, yeah, it's people, but like, what do we have to do to attract the best ones into our organization? What do we have to do to keep them? What do we have to do to engage them? Right. So like, if you wanted, let's say great lawyers, great lawyers have a lot of opportunities. They could go work anywhere. I mean, they're, they're paid well, wherever they are. And like, you know, how do you get them to your firm? It's not, you know, it's not just money because they have a lot of options. So how do you build the type of practice where the best attorneys want to be? You know, so that and that's what I mean by like you, you continuously learn more and more about these concepts um, over time. You start to realize like, wow, there's there's a lot more to it. Sure, sure. Well, I wouldn't
1: be uh, twenty twenty without talking about the pandemic. Um, what uh, what lessons did you did you learn, and how did uh, how did Chris deal with the uh, pandemic?
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, I will say this: like, you know, we were not immune. It, it's it's funny. It's like the question always like, how did the company adjust? Because I think everybody adjusted to the pandemic except for zoom, right. Where like, basically the world adjusted to them, you know? Um, And so we're a business that, you know, half the company travels. So whether we're going to like, you know, our our clients offices for video shoots or trainings, or we're conducting workshops and so on. So we were greatly impacted by, you know, any type of shutdowns when, you know, flights are grounded, that type of stuff. And I'm looking at like half the team, which was, you know, almost 40 people at the time that like literally cannot travel. That is really their sole role in the company. It's like, okay, what do we do? Like, you know, cause we didn't know one, how long, you know, the, the pandemic was going to last. Uh, we, you know, we took everybody remote and so on. But I, I think that once you kind of got, you know got over the initial shock, which, you know if when people are looking to you, you're like, okay we, someone has to have a plan. Someone has to make decisions. You don't know if they're necessarily the right ones but you have to do something. So we were able to kind of uh, move people into different roles, at least temporarily, so we were able to keep everybody. We didn't, you know, fortunately we, uh, you know, we didn't furl anybody, we didn't, you know, let anybody go on account of COVID or anything like that. Um, So I think that was a really good thing. Um, But I also found that there was, you know, it created these tremendous opportunities to innovate. So uh, you had to adapt very quickly to technology. Um, If if you weren't using Zoom or some sort of video conferencing, you you were, Uh, if you weren't using things like, you know, voice over IP phone systems or e-sign, I mean, the reality of it was is that that was the only way that you'd be able to either communicate with clients for your move, you know, uh, matters forward, cases forward, deals forward, whatever it is. So you had to adjust, um, you know, people were starting to do video, you know, remote depositions and things like that. But in our case, it was really like, okay, so what do we do? Uh, I mean, imagine when you're shooting videos and that is a, let's say a service that you sell and you can't actually go and deliver on that service because flights are either grounded or, um, everybody's terrified of COVID that, you know, they don't want to interact with a human being, right? Like even the team has to travel and get tested. So, uh, but this has been, I think one of the greatest, um, you know, I'm hesitant to say this because it's like, you know, we're still in COVID times and, you know, I want this to come across the right way. So I look back, you know, now in hindsight, I think this has been one of the greatest blessings in a way for the business because of how, you know, the, the team stepped up, the leadership stepped up how we basically almost had like this pressure on us when you had to adapt and you had to be able to adjust quickly. And, you know, you basically had to figure it out and to see them do that. I think that it, that's, you know, that's a wonderful thing. Now, do we want the pandemic to end it? Absolutely. But to not only survive through that, but that ultimately kind of figure it out and be able to, you know, to thrive in a way like this, this one being our, our most successful year in the history of the company. And if you were to ask me back in March, I would have been like, well, you know, this is probably going to be the least successful year in the history of the company like if we didn't do anything at that point. So like meaning that we were set up for the worst year. Um, but, but again, I think that it, there's always, you know what I've learned through a pandemic or any kind of difficult or, or scary times, the main kind of capability or even skill that, that becomes prioritized is not your resources. It's not like how much money you have. It becomes your, uh, I guess your adaptability and your flexibility and the speed at which you can make those types of decisions. Because we saw a lot of very successful law firms like immediately were shutting down. They were shutting down offices. They were, you know, uh, furloughing their team where uh, they were just letting people go and so on, that they were not very adaptable. Whereas, you know, going into 2021, we'll see a lot of firms that, you know, were previously, let's say not big players in a market have now become that because of how they spent their time during COVID. Whereas if you were just a big firm, that, that was no necessarily guarantee that this year would be any better for you. I, I think in many times it almost became a disadvantage um, because of what it was to pivot a cruise ship as opposed to like pivoting a business that was more nimble. So uh, again, look, looking back, I, I think it builds up a tremendous amount of confidence whenever you go through any kind of difficult time or crisis or anything like that. Um, but you know, to me, it built up a lot of confidence in our leadership team and just in just seeing what they were able to do. And then the fact that, you know, I I almost, I feel like I didn't crack a smile up until like a week ago when we actually hit our targets. But uh, it, it is one of those things where like, if, if people fully understood, like and the team internally you know, does, but like just, How like how massive an achievement that is like, you know, Alan, as you know, we've we've hosted a big industry conference for the last two years um, where, you know, we brought in a lot of our new business and clients from that, like a large percent from that. And then because of COVID, obviously, that didn't happen this year. We moved it to next year. Um, Plus, any event that was taking place in person, any conference, anything like that, those weren't an option this year. So you just had to figure out a different way. Um, And uh, it builds confidence when you can figure those things out. So, again, I think the bigger thing, to, the, the bigger skill set to prioritize is really just, you know, adaptability and flexibility. You know, I, I saw firms that changed their business model. They changed, you know, maybe a focus on a practice area. Maybe they, you know, early on, uh, they were doing like, you know, drive-in. or kind of like, you know, you'd uh, we, sign like a will or an estate plan or something like that. Like just to figure out, okay, how can we, you know, accommodate the needs of our clients in, in light of the current climate? And the firms that did it were very successful and the ones that kind of were sitting in the, you know, Kind of waiting it out and waiting for things to get better are still waiting.
1: Well, I thought one um, one case study uh, that I I really would be interested to hear as much as you can share about this. Um, but one of the things that you did very very early on that I thought was really effective. In fact, I thought it was so effective I started doing it myself. Um, and that was you would come on. I don't know if it was daily or every other day, but and you would do just a short. Uh, almost kind of pep talk or, um, uh, on Facebook and you'd send it out on social media and so forth. And, um, I thought that was so effective because it showed that you guys were still in the saddle and working. Um, but I suspect that that, that morphed into, uh, some actual product offerings over time,
0: didn't it? Yeah, you know, so we uh, so we really went in on the on the vlogging and like we even watched the podcast. This this all happened right right around March, and then this was part of like you know a lot of the team members that we were able to kind of uh, switch up their roles to be able to keep them. We really built a you know larger content team, if you will. But when we started vlogging, what what I saw was just that things got real quiet, you know, especially early on, and there there was a lot of people that you know uh, I guess so called thought leaders or people in the industry that you just didn't know if they were either still in business or what, because, you know, uh, but at at the same time, this is back in March and April and May, like this was a time where people needed more clarity and direction than ever, right? Like other entrepreneurs and other businesses, it's like, what, you know, what do we do? And although I I don't believe that I had, had all the answers, at the very least, I could document what we were doing and how we were responding. And, you know, at first, I wasn't sure, you know, how that would be received and you know, if that would be valuable to anyone. But, you know, we were getting so many messages back about how, you know, inspirational it was, how, like you know, just to be able to kind of be, be transparent and kind of humanize that. Uh, I think people value, especially like communities, uh, especially in difficult times where, you know, you may look around like other people in your market or competitors and so on that may not want to to share or may not want to be vulnerable or may not want you know just to basically uh confide in one another but if you look at the broader let's say like legal industry and so on there's other entrepreneurial like-minded people that were you know, talking about opportunities during this time and not just all the barriers that stood in the way. So um, you know, th- that's why we started doing it. Like, I just wanted to at least document how we were responding, what we were doing. Then we started featuring uh, you know, a number of our clients and how, you know, how they were responding and what they were doing. We weren't selling anything. It was just you know, literally just, it, the goal was to be you know, inspirational and informative because there was just so much negativity, you know, with, with everything with the news and you know, everything that was happening, even on social media and so on. Like you, you would think the world was ending but we wanted to highlight examples of firms that were proactive during this time and that were growing and like the things that you could do. So you felt that at least you had some options, which which we all did. Um, and then, you know, as, in terms of how involved into a, uh, like, I guess, a, a service offering, I don't know yet. I mean, so we got a lot of like, you know, what we were doing, we got a lot of, uh, interest in it, uh, from other firms and saying, well, what would it take, you know, if you guys do that for me and so on. So we're still kind of like thinking about it. I like to be very intentional with it. We're doing some of that on kind of like a, you know, a case by case basis. Um, but it's not something that's been opened up to the public yet. Um, and you know, because with anything that we do, and this is something that I've realized now over the years, like I like to be very, very intentional about it of making sure that it supports, you know, coming back to our earlier discussion, that it supports our vision. And, and if, it, if it helps, let's say a thousand law firm owners grow their revenues by a million each, it's probably a good idea. But if it's just something that can, let's say drive revenue or, you know, or whatever it is that may not tie into that, more often than not, I'll see it as a distraction. And, you know, we'll kind of refocus back to, you know, the, the vision. Yeah, I don't know if... Um... Again, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but
1: um, you know, I, I kind of compare my reaction to this this uh, setback uh, with my reaction to the 2008 uh, recession. A lot of similarities in terms of um, you know how business went. I mean, the the logistics were, were were different, but it it moved cheese for a lot of people. Um, and I think the biggest difference for me was the example you showed and some other folks showed. Of, of not treating it as a snow day, not treating it as uh, a defensive time, but to really go on the offensive. And uh, I guess my observation was that by starting those, those vlogs and, and moments, um, it really changed the way um, Chris marketed it, itself. Um, and th- that I'm sure you wouldn't have done it that way without the, without the, 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 the quarantine. Um, But I think it shows sometimes that you can start out with something and if you're um, intentional about it and, and self-reflective enough, it can morph into other things if you'll let it do that. And from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I think that's, um, you know, sometimes we want to be masters of our own uh, uh, destiny and we want to have the idea. um, But sometimes just something that, that fake drops in your lap can be,
0: uh, great if you if you run with it. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I mean, this is, this is one of the few times I think in history where, you know, you, you would get a trophy just for participating. So like, meaning that, you know, as the expression goes, like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And there was a lot of, you know, businesses, law firms, and so on that got very, very quiet. And their client, I mean, their clients still needed them. I mean, they were just, they had just as much fear and uncertainty, but by not, you know, you know, going on the offensive by not being proactive by not you know you know communicating and over communicating I think there was a lot of opportunities that were lost whereas you could have gained a lot of like trust and credibility as a result of that I mean I I would never say that we, we knew what was happening a month from now or like where you know where the pandemic would lead I mean that's not my area of expertise but I could communicate Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're responding. And and it's interesting that the other firm owners that I spoke with that also were proactive during this time, that use this time to, you know, develop their people, reinforce their processes, you know, support their community at a higher level, all these things, they've had a pretty strong year. I mean, they've ended up like, it's so interesting, almost unanimously, they ended up, you know, not only moving their law firm, you know, probably several years forward, but also as a result, like, you know, the revenue came too. These are the same ones that struggle with the same things where the courts were closed, where the curfews were a problem, like every barrier that you would hear about everything. They had the same barriers. I mean, we had a firm, I'll give you an example, um, one criminal defense firm in Waco, Texas, in a college town where the students were sent home and he's had his best year ever, you know? Yeah. Uh,
1: I've got a client who's a jewelry store and, um, I was watching a uh, news report you know they were doing this news report on how uh, businesses were hurt in the holidays and they were they were uh, interviewing a jewelry store owner some someone I didn't know and she was like, well you know people not coming in and uh, there's not a whole lot we can do about it and, and and compare with my client who tried to figure out okay how can I how can I do home jewelry sales? how can I uh, do virtual jewelry sales? how can I? And and he's and as you say he's had his best year because uh, he's gotten out of his store and he's made you know contactless deliveries and all these other things and I think it's just a mindset of um, if I can't make money the way I've always made money then I'm not going to make money as opposed to okay I've got this situation how do I overcome it and be successful and some people think one way and some people think the other and do uh, you, you think that that can be taught or is that just in, innate in in the way people are wired?
0: Well, well, you know, it's a loaded question. I've been thinking a lot about that over, over the last several months, especially in writing the, the second book. Uh, I, I think there's a part of it that is, you know, is, is our upbringing, you know, that we, kind of we we develop a certain way through our experience with the world and we see the world in a certain way. I think that's a part of it. Uh, but I do think so. Uh, it's, it's kind of like with, with sports in a way. I think there's the innate talent that you're born with, but then there's also how you can improve and hone that talent. So if you're one of these people that you know, let's say was born being very risk tolerant and being very, you know, let's say uh, like, you know, let's just say that you know the skill. I think that's a valuable aspect of being an entrepreneur. But then you also hone that skill in terms of learning how to be a better leader and so on. That you you've won both sides. But even if you weren't born in that way, but you still hone those skills, you can still be very very good. Um, so it's kind of the difference between talent and skill. Uh, I, I think uh, you know, skill is much more important because it's the one that you can develop and it's the one you can control. Uh, I, I will say, I, I think a huge testament to entrepreneurs this year. I mean, really globally, but you know, especially in America. Um, you know, I imagine that any entrepreneur that's listening. Yeah, I think there was a point this year we all realized that to an extent we're on our own. So like meaning that the amount of flexibility and creativity you've had to see from entrepreneurs all across America. I mean, literally they'll say, okay, here are the curfews. Here's the lockdowns. Here's another barrier. Here's another barrier. Here's another thing you can't do. Like, I mean, if if you're in the hospitality industry, if you're, I mean, in, in any industry, I mean, you're affected by this in some way. So you've had to almost kind of like figure out, okay, in spite of this, what do we need to do to kind of change our model to continue to succeed? And then you continue to be thrown more and more barriers Um, so, and I'm very pro-business, so I, you know, this is not a public health discussion or anything like that. I would just say that like there's businesses that have to support their teams and their families that, you know, that really support their communities and so on. So they've had to be so, so creative this year and, and flexible to just even, you know, support their own livelihood and, and, and continue to figure that out in spite of any kind of regulations or anything, you know, anything new that would come down the pipe. Um, but where, where I say, you know, you're on your own. You don't have to be if you have, you know, a community of supportive people that are also being very proactive. You know, I think it's very difficult to do any of this alone. Um, I, I certainly I mean, there was, you know, when COVID first hit, I kind of had maybe, I, I don't know, maybe half a day where I was thinking, what are we going to do? And then I had to snap out of it and do something. Um, but the good news is that, you know, I have great mentors, I have very, you know, smart people in, uh, on our leadership team and the team as a whole, that, you know, they were proactive, they came with insights, all these things that I did not have to do anything alone. I, I, think, I think self-made is a very kind of poor, like, poor concept. I don't think any of us are self-made at the end of the day. I think there's always people that have helped us to get to where we are and that continue to help us. Um, so, anyway, I, I, I don't know necessarily where I was going with all this, but I was just going to say that I think entrepreneurs this year specifically they deserve a lot of credit for not just even surviving, but how creative they've had to have been uh, in spite of everything else. I think that's right, and uh, yeah, I'm a
1: big believer in uh, nobody's self-made. I don't care how how much effort you put in yourself. If nothing else, somebody still has to pay you. You know, Mm -hmm. you you have to involve other people to be successful. And uh, I know, uh, Michael, you've certainly done that. You've got a great team there in Atlanta um, uh, working for you. And uh, I think one of the things that makes you successful is it's clear uh, that you care about your customers and your clients um, and want to see them succeed. And going back to the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, I've, I've always thought it's interesting. You're your mission statement isn't about your own success, it's about your customer's success. And that's not
0: lost on, on me and a lot of other people. I mean um, there's a great book uh, by Adam Grant. It's called Give and Take. And it talks about like givers, takers, and matchers. But th- the idea is that we succeed when we help somebody else win. And you know, when you when you have an impact goal that's tied to like helping somebody else succeed and helping somebody else win, you know, I think that's what creates cash confidence. So meaning that let's say we achieve the vision of helping a thousand law firms grow their revenues by a million each. If we achieve that, like chance start, we're not worried about where the next client's coming from because of how we've helped the, the previous thousand. So if we make decisions on what's just going to help them succeed, like everything else comes as a byproduct. And, and now we make different decisions. We make decisions that aren't, you know, are in the interest of our, of our clients, you know, that aren't necessarily in our own best interest. What's the right thing to do, what we prioritize experience, we prioritize results, all, all these different things. Um, and I think that's been a model that's worked really well. I've seen it with a lot of very, very successful entrepreneurs and businesses. Um, so when you, you can make it not about you, uh, I think that keeps you going longer. And you also never let your foot off the gas because there's no necessarily end destination, if you will. How's the new building coming? It's, that's another thing we did uh, during during COVID, bought a building in, uh, you know, basically in, in, in March of, of this year, when every, you know, every closing wasn't happening, ours still was, uh, we signed with masks and gloves. Um, it is, I mean, they're hard at work. Uh, it's gonna be opening up at the start of next year. Uh, it's been the probably the biggest investment and in, in project so far in, in my career. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, 50,000 square foot building and, you know, it, it's coming back to like, you know, we succeed when we help others win. 20,000 square feet of that is a training facility. And that's specific for our clients, because we believe we can deliver a better experience when we can really control that all aspects of that experience, as opposed to doing things, you know, let's say at a hotel or, you know, airport or or whatever it is, or another conference area. Um, But it's the belief that experience matters It's the belief that community matters, you know, just doing those things that we believe are the right thing to do. I guess, you know, time will tell, we'll we'll find out next year if it is right or wrong. But I also believe that people want to be together. Um, I, I think that you know, as much as we've been apart this year, I think people want to come back to you know to sporting events. I think they want to come back to to conferences and you know and all of these different things because it's just it's just human you know it's almost like human nature if you will. So so we're betting heavily on that. But uh, but again, I would have never bought the building if we didn't have this vision because like yeah you know, I we always look backwards and say okay like working backwards from that vision what has to be true you know uh, and and this was one of those things like we had to have a venue where we could actually do these workshops continuously with how we wanted to grow and scale so i would have never done it during covid if we weren't committed to a vision and we would have never been you know committed to a vision if there if there wasn't one right right well um
1: i think we we've kind of about come to the end of our time i i appreciate it michael i had uh several more things on my list to talk about maybe we could do this uh uh, again, maybe when the, when the new book comes out. Um, but for those of you um, that uh, are interested, uh, it's The Game-Changing Attorney. Uh, contact me. I can get you a copy. Or you can get this at uh, Amazon, too, can't you, uh, uh, Michael? Uh, or I bet you if you uh, contacted Mogul, he would uh, figure out a way to get you a book. Uh, sure. it's, it's, it really is a great read. And uh, uh, even if you don't hire Chris, lots of really, really good ideas in here uh, to help you build your law practice and, uh, really any service business. Um, you could learn a lot from that. Um, Michael, again, thank you so much for, uh, coming on the show. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you and, um, I agree with you. I'm looking forward to the next time uh, I'm in Atlanta and we can break bread together.
0: Agreed. Um, thank you for having me.
1: All right. Very good. Uh, thank you, everybody. I'm going to steal a line from Michael. If you've enjoyed this podcast, and of course, well, of course you did. Why Why? Why wouldn't you have enjoyed it? Uh, please share and uh, like us on Facebook and on social media. Forward it uh, in an email to uh, somebody you think would enjoy it or benefit from it. Uh, again, I'm Alan Crone, CEO of the Crone Law Firm. Uh, thank you, and I'm going to go uh, get some justice. Thanks.